0: we will be in the book of second corinthians beginning chapter 5 this week last week we made the the point that we have great cause for hope in this earth we have great cause for hope we do not lose heart there seems to be a disconnect often in our lives doesn't there we we know what the bible says we We believe this is true. And yet throughout the daily course of life, when you wake up in the morning and you start walking through your day and you talk to people on the phone and you start doing your studies or your school or you start taking care of the chores around the house or the farm, somehow what we know to be true here seems to become more distant, becomes more distant in our minds. And if we're not careful, before long we begin acting as if this really isn't true, as if there really is no God, as if these light and momentary troubles are actually not light but very heavy and not momentary but going to last the rest of my life. We get the wrong perspective Very, very quickly. Paul is writing this letter. Partially to explain to us. How in the middle of his normal everyday life. With all of the afflictions. All of the persecution. All of the trouble. Much more than we probably will ever know. He was able to keep his eyes on Jesus. This is what we desire for our lives. And hopefully Through the course of this sermon, you hear Christ calling you to a daily life of reliance upon Him, upon His Holy Spirit. This is our hope. Going to read uh, chapter 4, verses 16 through chapter 5, verse 8. Would you please stand for the reading of God's inspired and holy word? So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray once again. Our Father, our hearts often are so conflicted. We hear your holy words and yet we have random thoughts penetrating into what should be a moment of contemplation. We have attacks from the enemy while we even sit in this service. Desiring to hear the words of God, we pray that you would indeed protect each one of us. Enable us to embrace your word, your holy scriptures. Enable us to understand how to please you, how to love you, to know you better. We can only do this by your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Heaven is our eternal home. Heaven. This is again one of those things you think of heaven. And because we don't know exactly what heaven will be like, we think it probably doesn't exist. Or if it does exist, it's probably something um, not really enjoyable. It's probably something that's not going to be good. We convince ourselves that what's really good is here. This is good. This earth is good. My home is good. My work is good. My money is good. My family's good. Heaven, not sure if that's good. We see this all the more when you talk to unbelievers about death. Unbelievers, first of all, usually don't want to talk about death at all. It's the worst of all possibilities is death. Unbelievers think the thought of death is terrifying. True believers though, those who have faith in Christ, are not so afraid of death. We depart life without quibbling. We will go willingly if our hearts are on Christ because we know that God is waiting for us. We know that heaven is our eternal home. I'm going to walk walk through this text Uh, And just show you a few things that I hope are encouraging. Uh, Six things in particular. We'll see that our hope really is in heaven. We'll talk about what happens at death. What happens to us. What actually will happen to you when you stop breathing, your heart stops beating when you die. What will happen? We'll see that we should long for heaven. And we'll see that we are groaning on this earth but that God, through his Holy Spirit, is actually preparing us to go to heaven right now. As you hear these words, God is preparing you to go to heaven. And you need to remember that there is no guarantee that there will be a tomorrow for any of us. When I was at the funeral home a few months ago talking to the director, who unfortunately I've gotten to know in his capacity as director of the funeral home, I asked him what his biggest challenges were, and I've shared it with you before, but it just struck me. He said, you see, old people die, and it hurts because you know them, but it doesn't hurt as much as when you see a young person who has died. And young people are dying all the time. The day of your death is in God's hands, And whether you're 5 years old or 95 years old, you should have, if you have faith in Christ, the same hope in heaven. This is not anything that we should be terrified of at all. Well, let's look at the text. Just to recap verses 16 through 18 of chapter 4. Paul says that we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed Day by day, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, he renews our souls, he renews our inner man, and he gives us that hope, that hope that this life, although meaningful and important, is not the end. We have hope that all of the promises of God's word are true and that we will be with Jesus forever in heaven. This is part of our renewal as we study the scriptures, as we spend time in communion with the Lord in prayer, as we spend time together in worship and in fellowship. And in this light, we can see that our struggles are light and momentary. They're not heavy, they're light. In comparison to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. This is Paul's message At the end of chapter 4. So that we're not discouraged by trials on earth. We don't lose heart. And in chapter 5 he continues this theme. That our hope in heaven should inspire us. Our hope. Of an eternal weight of glory. What is this hope? And what is this eternal weight of glory? I want to speak for just a moment. Talking about our hope of heaven. What is it? Uh, Derek Thomas has written a helpful book if you would like to study heaven, the the biblical doctrine of heaven. He walks through the Scriptures and just talks about what we know. There's much that we don't know, but there's much that we know. Well, what is it? I'll summarize it quickly. Many things come to mind. Paul specifically references leaving this earth. Well, that's true. When we die, we, we remain only in body on the earth, but our souls are immediately with the Lord in heaven. So when you think of heaven, what do you think of? Most of us think of our glorified bodies. We're getting new bodies, like Jesus, brand new bodies, not completely different from the old bodies, but without any fault, without any sin, without any pain, without any defects, glorified bodies that will dwell in forever and ever. So that's part of heaven, but we also think of a place, uh, a restored heaven and a restored earth, a place with no sin and death. So those are two things, but the most important thing I believe that we, we think about heaven is that Jesus is there. We get to be with Jesus forever. So glorified bodies in a glorified new heavens and new earth with Jesus forever. There's probably a lot more that we could say. But that's our hope. That's what we hope for. We believe that the new heavens and the new earth will be our eternal home. The end of Revelation, of course, talks about this. This is Revelation 21, where John said, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Do you notice that that's the fulfillment of the covenant promise from the very beginning? I will be your God and you will be my people. It's the promise to Abraham. It's the promise to all the, the, the godly line from the very beginning. And now at the end it happens. You remember in the Garden of Eden, it started God dwelling with man. And then they sinned. In the end, God restores that. God is going to dwell with man again. The dwelling place of God is with man. He goes on to say, And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God Himself will be their God, will be with them as their God, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain any more. The one seated, seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. That's a great summary, a great picture of heaven, isn't it? In Second Peter 3, Peter says, we are all waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. So this is our hope. So most people, when they say heaven, and I'm just going to tell you now, when I speak of heaven, I'm referring to the new heavens and the new earth because it seems that in in the new heavens and the new earth heaven and earth are, are joined in a way that we don't currently have right heaven is some place that we don't know much about and the new heavens and the new earth they'll be together this is probably pictured in revelation chapter 20 or 21 the new jerusalem coming down majestically to earth from above So when we say heaven, we're actually talking about the new earth as well. So when Paul speaks of an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison and looking to things that are unseen, this is what he's referring to. This ultimate consummation of all things. Being with God forever. Him dwelling with us. Us being with Jesus. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Forever. So we don't lose heart. You can see how that would be a great encouragement if you understand it, if this is something you're constantly considering and thinking about, the hope of glory. So what Paul's saying. He doesn't lose heart. He has an eternal weight of glory that holds him steady. Well, now he expounds on this in chapter 5, verse 1, talking about death. He says, For we know that if this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. If this tent is destroyed, this tent, this earthly tent is our body. This is the body that you you now have. This is your earthly tent. And he's saying that if the earthly tent is destroyed, in other words, when you die, you have a hope in heaven, a heavenly house. A building from God. A house not made with hands. Eternal in the heavens. So the earthly tent is easy for us to grasp because you see it. You, you, you have a body that you can touch and you can feel. And, and you know that your body is real. But the, the heavens although just as real, are grasped only by faith. Paul is calling us to believe what he said, that we have an eternal heaven awaiting for us. But when this body is buried and we transition to our heavenly house, this will be a wonderful comfort. And I believe that when he talks about our earthly tent being destroyed and proceeding to our heavenly house. He's talking about that time between our death on the earth up until the resurrection. Going to heaven is going to the building from God. The house not made with hands. So the time between your death and Christ's second coming and the resurrection would be this time he's referring to. In other words, it's a good thing. It's something to look forward to. And we know that the souls of believers immediately proceed to the Father's side. There's no, there's no, just, there's no place where you just don't exist. It's not that you die and your soul just goes into soul sleep. That doesn't happen. Your soul goes straight to be with the Father soon as you stop breathing, you are with the Father in Christ. Your bodies are still united with Christ and they remain in the ground until the resurrection. That's what our confession teaches. But your soul goes immediately to be with the Father. We know this is true from the teachings of Jesus, from the life of Jesus. Remember when the Sadducees came and they tried to trick him by saying... There's a man and he had a wife, and then he divorced her and had another wife, and he divorced her and had another wife, and or she died, and anyway he had seven wives. They said, So Jesus, I think we got you. In heaven, which one of these women will be the man's wife? And he said, There's not marriage in heaven, first of all. You don't know the scriptures. But he said you're greatly mistaken. Because God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. The implication being that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive with the Father right now. Or the story of Lazarus, where he told the the parable, if you will, in Luke chapter 16 about the poor man who died. And he was carried away to the bosom of Abraham and... The rich man died as well. And he was in torment. Shows us that at death we go to be with the Father. We also, I think, see this in the transfiguration. Moses and Elijah appeared talking to Jesus. They were there. But probably most... Uh, poignantly we see this when Jesus is talking to the thief on the cross you remember he's hanging on the cross he's bearing the weight of the wrath of God on his shoulders and it's at this time he actually does ministry he he shares the, the hope of the gospel in some way to the thief next to him and brings this man into life And he tells him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So I hope I've helped you understand that when you die, you will go immediately to be at the Father's side. You will. All of you. This is what Paul, I think, is talking about in the scripture. He could possibly be making a reference to our glorified bodies. The heavenly building being our glorified body. But that doesn't really fit the context. It makes the context in this passage more difficult. But I like Calvin's thought that death is the beginning of the heavenly building, but the resurrection is the consummation of it. Regardless, the point is we are going at our death to be with the Father. When this earthly tent is gone, we're going to be in heaven with the Father. This is a great comfort. Death is not the end. In a sense, it's only the beginning. Eternity is long. Our life is but a breath. Our our lives are short. This is why he calls our body a tent and the heavenly dwelling is a house. He's making reference to the tabernacle moving around the wilderness. And it was sufficient. And God's presence was there, and it was a place of worship, but it was temporary. It was a tent. But when Solomon built the temple, the temple was permanent. The temple was meant to be the place where God's presence would rest. The temple was magnificent. Paul's using this, this imagery to show us what's happening on this earth. We have a permanent dwelling in heaven, a house not made with hands. And you should really consider, this is just a side note, consider your life as a wandering in the wilderness. Really, the whole history of Israel is the history of each Christian. In slavery to the Egyptians, we were in slavery to sin. God redeemed us by the death of the firstborn brought us into new life we've crossed over the river the dead sea and become or the red sea and become his own people he has put his ownership upon us and baptism represents that that's regeneration that placing of the spirit upon us as the israelites went through the red sea and were baptized if you will they became god's own people and he gave them the law And he gave them his presence. And they built the tabernacle. And they wandered for 40 years. Through much trouble. Through much travail. Through much difficulty. But their hope was always that they would cross the Jordan. And enter the promised land. And eventually after much difficulty. They crossed into the promised land. In so many ways this mirrors our own lives. And Paul again is. Is leaning upon that imagery when he calls our bodies here a tent, but the house in heaven, a permanent dwelling. Isn't it interesting, too, that in verse 1 he says this is something that we know? We know. He's saying, most importantly, that he knows. He's using we in the possessive sense of his own understanding. But also it implies that we should all know this. Christians should all have a very particular understanding of life and death. It should drive us. We're not afraid. We know something that this world doesn't know. And we know it. That death is, although difficult for those who remain, for, for the one who has died in Christ. It's a wonderful event in your life. It's a wonderful event to go be with our Savior. Forever. So in verse two, he tells us why we we see this happening in each one of our our faith journeys, if you will, to, to use the wilderness uh, metaphor. He says, In this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. So in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Paul says something similar in Philippians 1, if you remember. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How many of you would would say that if you died, it would be a gain? You should think that. You should all think that's, that's much to be preferred than another day on this earth. Why? If I live in the flesh, it's fruitful labor. God's put us here, He says, to do good work. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. It's far better to depart and be with Christ. Here Paul says that in this tent we groan and we long to put on our heavenly dwelling. We long to go be with Jesus. All of us who love Jesus have this same understanding. We want to be with Him. This is part of our inheritance. Yes, we do have fruitful labor on earth. No, our lives are not just drudgery, walking through, hoping for, for an eternity and we hope we, just, we, we could pass away today. We just can't wait for Christ to return. That's not our attitude. That's not what Paul's saying. He's just acknowledging that life is difficult. But we have an eternal hope. Here on this earth, we have an opportunity to shine brightly for the kingdom. Here in this, in this earth, we have an opportunity to, to show others the way to Christ. And if you die today apart from Christ... If today is your last day on earth and you don't have faith and you don't really believe Christ, there's no more chance for you. That is it. So this life is meaningful and it's significant. That's why dads are, are called to worship with their families every day, to take every opportunity. Like Deuteronomy 5 tells us, we need to be Waking up in the morning and teaching our children. We need to be walking on the road and teaching our children. We need to be sitting down and teaching our children. We need to be laying down at the end of the day. Teaching our children and our families. Husbands and wives encouraging each other. In Christ. Always thinking of Christ. Why? Because when you're dead, you have no opportunity any longer. Those opportunities are gone. So we do have fruitful labor here on the earth. But that opportunity, that labor ends at our deaths and we proceed to be with Christ. And certainly this is far better for all the reasons we read in Revelation. Even without our glorified bodies, even just our souls being with the Father, He says that we won't be found naked. In other words, when we go there, we're not going to be found naked Naked being, if you remember Adam and Eve after the sin, they what? They realized they were naked and they covered themselves. It seems that Paul might be saying, you're not going to be ashamed not having a body. There's no shame involved in being a spirit in heaven waiting for the resurrection. When you go there, you won't be found naked. You're going to have a home with Christ. He continues to talk in verse 4 about this particular life. He says, for while we are still in this tent, while you still are in in this world, in your body, we're groaning, we're being burdened. Why are we groaning? Why are we burdened? Well, he told us in chapter 4, if you remember. He said, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. We're being given over to death every day. This is difficult. Living this life, there will be trouble and hardship and pain. And as a minister of the Gospel, Paul says, my life is full of groanings. My life is full of burden." It's hard. But he's not going to lose heart. And this is true for all of Christ's followers. Jesus said that we will have trouble in this world. You remember that. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Peter says, don't be surprised at the the fiery trial when it comes upon you. I see this, this, this kind of pattern in people's lives. They, they find a renewed, they've been praying for revival in their own hearts. And God gives them a new, a, a new sense of purpose in Christ. The Spirit seems to, to empower them and, and inspire them to pursue Jesus. To forsake their sin, to mortify their flesh, to pursue godliness and holiness. And the Holy Spirit does this work. But that's exactly when Satan Comes to attack. That's exactly when the trouble and the hardship seem to strike most fiercely. This is why Peter says, Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. So, as you pursue Jesus, as you pursue godliness through the Holy Spirit, through His Word, we shouldn't be surprised if we're persecuted if we're attacked Timothy is told by Paul that everyone who desires to live a godly life what will be persecuted That's all Christians you should desire to live a godly life the persecutions coming John says don't be surprised that the world hates you it's actually Jesus speaking in the gospel of John Don't be surprised that the world hates you Jesus even said it was a blessing when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on his account. For great is your reward in heaven. So have I made the point? Your life is filled with trouble. Paul says his life was filled with great trouble and distress. But he has hope. He's groaning. He's groaning for something better. When my children were very young, we didn't have David, so they were very young. Yeah, we did not have David yet. So, three little girls at the time, maybe age three, two, and one. And uh, we were stationed at Fort Hood, Texas. And right after 911, our unit just up and deployed. We went to Kuwait. And I remember, it's just stamped on my memory, I'm getting onto this army bus, this green bus. There's my wife and my three little girls. They're crying. I'm in charge of this unit, so I'm not crying, but I feel like crying. And we drive away. And there was just such a, a heaviness in my heart. And it didn't go away. I was... Thousands of miles away in some bunkhouse in Camp Doha in Kuwait, and my heart was aching for my children and my wife. There was a groaning in my soul to be with them. That's a wonderful answer to prayer, actually. Molly, who was only, I don't, I think four, three or four years old. She told her mother, I'm going to pray that Daddy comes home for Christmas. This doesn't matter to the point of the text, but it's just a wonderful, um, wonderful answer. And Mary Kay said, I don't know. If, I mean, she didn't want to tell her not to pray because we've been teaching our children to pray. So she told little Molly, okay, you can pray for that. Knowing that it's fairly impossible that one person going to going to come home um, from a deployment before combat. And Molly kept praying. And three months later, I came home a few weeks before Christmas. And that longing, that groaning ended. Why? Because I was finally where I should have been the whole time. I guess when we view our lives as strangers and exiles here on the earth, there should be a groaning. There should be a longing for us to be with our Father, to be with the Son, To be in the presence of the Holy Spirit forever. If you read Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about these great men and women who walked the earth longing for a better place. They never received the promise, they were strangers and exiles on the earth seeking a homeland, a better country, a heavenly one. This is part of what it means for us to groan, to groan in our flesh. So it informs you when you're suffering as well, when you experience a trial in life, something that's difficult, and we all have them to varying degrees. In the one sense, it hurts. In the one sense, it's not pleasurable at all. But then you have your eyes fixed on Jesus, your eternal dwelling, your heavenly calling. And in that sense, it's an encouragement because you remember these scriptures that we are to groan on this earth for a better place. But he's, he goes on to say. But it's not that we would be unclothed. As if to say. It's not that we have a death wish. We're not going to go commit suicide today. So that we can go be with, have, with Jesus in heaven. We're not going to stop taking our medicine. Or wearing our seat belts. Although I know some of you don't wear your seatbelts at all. But our, I, the idea is not that we just want to die so badly. That we're just going to live foolish lives. The day of our death is in the hand of the Lord. We don't fear that day, but we we still desire to live on this earth as long as he will allow us because it means fruitful ministry, to use Paul's words. We desire the eternal life. And that's what he means by saying we would be further clothed. We desire to be further clothed. It's it's that our death brings about a greater reality, a more pleasant, a more joyful reality when what is mortal is swallowed up by life. St. Augustine in 400 AD or so said this about death. He said, My thoughts in the deepest places of my soul are torn with every kind of tumult in the day when I shall be purified and melted in the fire of your love, wholly joined to you. Certainly we need to shed this tent and die if we're going to be with the Father. But that is not something that we're terrified of. This is when we're going to be purified in the fire of the love of God. And speaking of purification, uh, one of the ways that the Puritans thought about this life was in their sanctification. And it wasn't just a sanctification so that we were more godly and more fruitful in our ministries. But it was a sanctification unto heaven. This is verse 5. It says, He has prepared us for this very thing. The one who has prepared us for this very thing is God. He's prepared us to be in heaven. How has He prepared us for immortality? How has He prepared us for death and for the eternal life that is to come? The Puritans would say, He's prepared you by sanctifying you here on this earth. He's made God has made you holy for heaven, and of course, there's some some things we could say about that. There's some holes, but generally, I think that it's true. J.C. Ryle said, "To be really happy in heaven, we must be trained and made ready for heaven on earth." In other words, we we begin to embrace the Spirit's work in our lives so much so, not only that we see clearly to know that heaven is real that Christ really died and rose again, that He's awaiting us, but that the Holy Spirit begins to sanctify us as well. The two things seem to go together. I mean, the obvious meaning, though, is that God has prepared us to put on immortality. God has prepared us for this very thing by His Holy Spirit, by showing us the truth of His Word, by giving us an eternal hope. This is a work of the Spirit. And only the Spirit can do this. Which is why he goes on to say that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee. A down payment, if you will. The Holy Spirit removes our doubts when we are tempted. The Holy Spirit reminds us of the truth of His Word. The Holy Spirit confirms the love of God in our hearts. And the glory of heaven. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee. We are His We are His people. You remember in Revelation 21, God will dwell with man. They will be His people and He will be their God. So why do you have faith? Why are you united to Christ? Why do you have any comfort in this life, the Holy Spirit? Why are you sanctified in this life? Why do you see your sin becoming something that you abhor? Why do you see your life becoming more Christ-like? Why is your hope in Christ becoming more unshakable every day? The Holy Spirit. Why do you read the Word and find yourself encouraged and renewed? The Holy Spirit. Why do you love Jesus? It's the Holy Spirit. Why are your prayers effective? Because of the Holy Spirit. Why are you so certain that you are God's child? It's because of the Holy Spirit. This is the essence of our guarantee The person of the Holy Spirit. The same in substance with the Father and the Son. Equal in power and glory with the Father and Son. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. So what? Verse 6. So we are always of good courage. That's what. The Holy Spirit enables you to embrace all that I've said. And this gives you courage in life. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, he says, and would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This is by the Holy Spirit we have courage. We see heaven is so much better than anything this earth has to offer. The glories of being with Jesus Christ forever far surpass anything, it's an eternal weight it far surpasses our light and momentary troubles. This is why we're of good courage. And courage is required of the Christian. Cowardice is not something that's ever valued for anyone, much less a Christian. We are of good courage. As Paul said in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Yes, we are of good courage. So many times I think people are are tempted to or tempted by the predominant culture which says uh, the world's falling apart, the government's gone crazy, you're going to lose all your savings, you're going to lose your property, you're going to lose your health, nothing is going to happen that's good, they're going to throw you in jail, etc., etc., etc. You realize Christians are the ones who are of good courage. We don't lose heart. Those things do not scare us. Because of Jesus, the author of history, we walk by faith and not by sight. We don't look at our circumstances and and grow fearful. We look at our circumstances and look to God. We fix our eyes on Jesus and we take courage. We're of good courage. We'd rather be at the body, away from the body and at home with the Lord. But while He has us here, we are of good courage. So I want to close with this. Why don't you have courage? Why don't you have courage? If you're a Christian, the first thing I'll ask you is, are you spending time every day in this book? Are you getting to know your God? This is everyone's duty who loves Christ to spend time. You can't have relationship with someone if you don't spend time with them. If you're too busy for the Word of God, you're too busy. Open your Bibles. Spend time in the Word of God. You need to commune with the Holy God in prayer and in study and hear like you are in fellowship, in corporate worship. So if you don't have courage, ask yourself, Am I so fearful? Am I so anxious for those reasons? Because the answer is probably yes. And what should you do? If you are fearful and anxious, you turn to God in prayer. You turn to His Word. He'll give you courage. Let's say you don't know if you're a Christian or not. Do you know that the smallest bit of faith In Jesus Christ is enough. Do not be discouraged. Brother and sister, if you have faith in Christ and you feel like your faith is failing, you feel like nothing you do is right, if you have faith in Christ, hold on to it. That faith is from the Spirit of God. Don't grow discouraged. If you recognize that you actually don't have any faith, you know this because your life is the same as it always has been. Today's the day to turn to Christ in repentance and in faith. Jesus Christ gives you courage. He is the only hope for anyone. Today could be the day that you start that next phase of life eternal in heaven or not eternal in hell. So don't wait. And don't grow discouraged. I feel a burden to just encourage weak, those with weak faith, don't be discouraged. Lean into God. Run to Jesus. He will not push you away. He will not quench out the smoldering wick. He will not. Run to Him. You have an eternal hope in heaven. So be of good courage let us pray our father we thank you for your word and we thank you for a word of life we pray that you would encourage our souls with our hope of heaven you would encourage our souls that you have gone to prepare a place for us a place that can never be destroyed lord you have encouraged us to to store up treasures for ourselves in heaven by living well on this earth, by living for Jesus, by pursuing a godly life, despite the persecution that might come, despite the hardships in our life, Lord, we desire to serve you. We desire with our spirit eyes, Holy Spirit-inspired eyes, to grasp on the love of Christ. To wrap our arms just a little bit around what awaits us. An eternity with Jesus. An eternity without any pain or sorrow or suffering or tears or discomfort. Where all will be made new. Everything will be made right. Lord, give us this hope by your Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.